that we'll be studying, we read this afternoon from Romans chapter 5. Romans 5, just a few verses, verses 12 through 21. This is the word of God. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through the righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So far from the word of God. As we reflect on these things, let's sing together from Psalm 34, stanza 7. And in many ways, that's what the beginning of the Heidelberg Catechism is designed to do to us, to remind us of our brokenness so that we would be crushed in spirit, broken in heart because of our sin. We find ourselves this afternoon in Lord's Day 3, the middle of the section on our sin and misery, And the question in Lord's Day 3 is, did God then create man so wicked and perverse? No, on the contrary, God created man good and in his image, that is in true righteousness and holiness, so that he might might rightly know God his creator, heartily love him, and live with him in eternal blessedness to praise and glorify him. From where then did man's depraved nature come? From the fall and disobedience of our first parents, Adam and Eve, in paradise. For there our nature became so corrupt that we are all conceived and born in sin. But are we so corrupt that we are totally unable to do any good and inclined to all evil? Yes, unless we are regenerated by the Spirit of God. So far from the Heidelberg Catechism.
brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ. It's been a few weeks since we've been working in the Heidelberg Catechism, so perhaps not all of these things are as fresh in our minds as as we would like them to be, but several weeks ago, we began the uncomfortable process of looking at ourselves honestly in the light of Scripture, seeing what Scripture teaches us about who we are. This is where, as we saw then, this is where the Christian faith begins. And this is also then where the Catechism teaches us to begin in our survey of the Christian faith. We don't exalt ourselves. We don't find ourselves in in our high self-esteem, but instead we humble ourselves before the righteous judgments of God. We're never going to embrace our Savior until we know who we are. And so last time when we were working on Lord's Day 2, we saw that our goal is true joy. Our goal is the joy and the comfort that you find in Lord's Day 1. The kind of joy that, that we've seen in other saints around the world and in history who've rejoiced even as they lost their lives and their properties and all that they had. Because they knew that they had a much more valuable inheritance. That's what we want for ourselves, that same comfort, that same joy. Well, we know that we will not have that joy until we admit to God and to ourselves the honest truth about who we are. We, we tell ourselves lies, and so the beginning of the catechism begins to work on them and undo those lies. We do this to ourselves all the time. We lie to ourselves that we are relatively good people, that God is still going to accept us because, well, we go to church twice a week or we've learned our catechism or whatever else it is. These are lies that we tell ourselves. We make ourselves believe that God accepts us on the basis of the things that we do. But we know that we're never going to have that joy unless we relinquish those lies unless we submit to the truth that God tells us about ourselves. We need to come under His righteous judgment if we're ever going to know what it means to live true, abundant joy, to really live as God has made us to live. We know that to to live a life that, that tells itself lies, to live a life that's at odds with God's righteousness and not not deal with that would require us to break our fellowship with God, to live one life believing one thing while our God tells us another. There can be no relationship with God under those terms if we tell ourselves that we're not the people that he says that we are. And so for us, because the gospel has shown us that God's word is true and God's word speaks accurately about us, we're here now to put ourselves under God's word. We've prepared our hearts to hear whatever it is that God will tell us. And we know that this is going to take us places that we don't want, that we would rather not go to. It's going to get specific in ways that make us uncomfortable. It's easy enough to admit in a, in a general sense that we're all sinners. It's a lot harder 
but absolutely necessary to let God's word and our fellow Christians get into the specifics of our lives and say, this is not right and this needs to change. But that's where we need to go. If God cannot speak to us, then we cannot know what it is to live the joy of fellowship with him. And so this afternoon, the catechism then pushes us to examine what Scripture teaches us about how our human nature and the human race has become what it is, so that we can understand what we're up against in our own flesh. So we, we need to know not only how sinful we are, what that sinful nature is really like, but we also need to know how it got that way. You can't address the problem until you know what caused it. And so we read a moment ago from Romans chapter 5. Here Paul is is writing more about the Christian life, which is a little ahead of where we're at now in the catechism. But in the process, he, he compares and contrasts what Christ has done for us with what our first father Adam did to us to cause us to become the way that we are. There's three main things we want to draw out then of of Paul's argument. First, we were created good. This is is more in Romans 5 by implication than, than direct statement. But Paul says in verse 12, for example, sin came into the world through the one man. Or in verse 19, by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So if Adam's sin brought sin into the world, if he made us sinners, then by implication, of course, we weren't created that way. It's what Genesis 1, of course, teaches us as well. We were created very good. We weren't created sinful. And that's important. We need to recognize that. So that's the first thing we'll consider. Secondly, we have ruined ourselves. It's what Paul says directly in the verses I just cited. It was our own actions as a human race that caused us to become the way that we are. It's not God's fault. It's not God's actions. We as individuals might not have been born yet, but humanity brought itself into sin with Adam. Our great-great-great-great-grandfather Adam represented us at Uh, when, when he fell into sin. And so any honest assessment of our own lives suggests that we would have made the same choice, and there's absolutely no blaming God for the way that we are. And then thirdly, we'll see that it takes a miracle to fix us. We need to know that. We can't fix ourselves by our own strength and effort. Paul makes it very clear. It's the righteousness of Christ that makes us righteous before God, that frees us from the slavery to sin. His intervention is our only hope. So those are the the three points that, that we'll be giving our attention to. So first, we were created good. It's so important to understand this. This is clear enough, as I mentioned from the account in Genesis. Genesis 1, verse 31, God saw everything that he made, and behold, it was very good. Ecclesiastes 7, verse 29, God made man upright. He made us righteous, good. And that's important to understand because if we're going to to see how far we've fallen, we need to know what we were created to be in the first place. Many of us don't even realize the, the kind of people that we were created to be. 
Maybe we acknowledge at a theological level that we were made good, but in our day-to-day thinking, we've grown so accustomed to, to the sin, the selfishness, the depravity that we see in ourselves that we can't even imagine the human race any other way than the way that we know. It's very easy to become cynical, to neither expect nor hope for any real righteousness or genuine sacrificial love. It's very easy to think that's not even possible for human beings. But we need to recognize the way we are is not the way that God created us. Genesis Genesis 1 teaches we were made in God's image. That doesn't mean that, that uh, like us, God has a body with two arms and two legs or something like that. No, when Scripture says we were made in God's image, it means that we were created to reflect who God is. We were able to have relationship with Him. So it not only means that we are created rational, spiritual, moral beings, just as God is, but we are also created upright, righteous, holy, loving, wise, just as God is, all of those things. The Canons of Dort do a good job of, of summarizing these, these things when, when it divides the image of God into our, our minds, our wills, and here's that old-fashioned word from this morning, our affections. In our minds, it says, we were adorned with a true and wholesome knowledge of God and of all spiritual things. In our will, in our heart, the root of our choices, we were made upright. In our affections, we were made pure. And we need to understand this about ourselves. It seems like such a far cry from the reality that we know of ourselves as fallen, sinful human beings. It seems so impossible to imagine that we we begin to think it couldn't have actually been that way. And so we lower for ourselves our, our standard of goodness. But we shouldn't do that. This is what God made us to be. And we need to realize the way we are now is a tragedy. We have fallen a long ways from what God has made us to be. The Lord's Day that we read summarizes the image of God in which we are created uh, by saying, God created man good and in his image, that is in true righteousness and holiness, so that we might rightly know God, his creator, heartily love him, and live with him in eternal blessedness to praise and glorify him. So this not only describes what we were made like, but also what we were made for. You read it in places like Isaiah 43, verse 7. God created us for his glory. To know God, the catechism says. We were made to know God. God made us so we could know him and his worth and his beauty. To love God. See, the more we come to know him, the more we will, of course, love him and treasure all that we know of him. To esteem him, to value him, to treasure him. It's our greatest delight to know God, and the more we know him, the more we will love him. And third, the Catechism says we were created finally to live with God in eternal blessedness to praise and glorify him. It's an amazing thought. God created us not to be his slaves, but to know him, to love him, and to live with him in eternal blessedness. 
The, the Westminster Confession, that's the one that Presbyterians use, they, it asks the question at the very beginning, what is the chief end of man? And it gives the answer to glorify God and enjoy him forever. It's saying essentially the same thing here as, as Lord's Day 2. And those two things are, of course, very closely related. Some people have even argued it's, it's better to rephrase that. We were created to glorify God by enjoying him forever. We were created to delight in him, to rejoice in his glory, to be overwhelmed by the knowledge of his beauty, his worth, his wisdom, his righteousness. It's what God made us for, so that we would come to know him and rejoice in him. It's very hard to imagine what such a life would be like in all of its fullness, the way that God created it to be. It's glorious beyond our ability to fathom, and especially beyond our ability as a fallen, broken, sinful people. We're usually quite content with a very small knowledge of God, a very distant relationship with Him, because we have a hard time believing that anything else is actually possible. That's the only human existence that we know. And that's also what makes the joy that we've seen in other saints around the world and in history, it's what makes it so unfathomable, but also so desirable. That's what we were made for. What would it be like to live life like that? Rejoicing in him, knowing him, intimately close with him. We know it's a far better life than the empty, small, selfish lives that we often build for ourselves. What would it be like to see God's glory, to know his glory day after day in such a way that it causes us to forsake every other pursuit and live our lives joyfully for him, giving up everything because we know that he is a far better inheritance. We see this in in someone like David in the Psalms that he writes, but we very, very rarely find ourselves relating to it willing to lose everything because we see the preciousness of of God and of Christ as far more valuable than anything else that we have. So So scripture teaches us that the way the human race is now is not the way that God created it to be. The sinful nature that you find inside yourself is not the nature that God created or it's not the way that God created it to be. If we, if we choose to just accept the way that we are, come to terms with the way that we are and the way that the human race is, then we will die in our misery not knowing any better. But God's word, as it were, shouts through all the brokenness and all the pain in our world and in ourselves. Do not let yourself get used to the person that you are. It's a tragedy how far we've fallen There's something else we we should also understand about the way that God created us. We were created with a will that was free, which means that God gave us each our own independent wills to choose to love him or forsake him, to choose to do good or to do evil. God gave Adam and Eve a commandment in the garden, and they had the freedom to choose whether they would keep it or break it. 
This is hard to, for, for us to, to understand because we also know, of course, that God is sovereign over our human wills. Nothing happens outside of his control. But what it means when we say God gave us a free will, God created us with free wills, is God didn't make us as robots. He made us genuinely free so that our choices come from nowhere but ourselves. And this is important to understand because one of the things that we're, we're tempted to do when we, when, when we take this honest inventory of who we really are, as Scripture teaches us, and we're faced with, with the choices that we've made that have often been very destructive, the perverse desires that we find within us, one of the things we're tempted to do is to blame God for the way that we are. But Scripture clearly teaches us otherwise. Think of James 2 where he says, Let no one when he is tempted say, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. God is not the author of the evil that exists inside me or you. I and my ancestor Adam are entirely to blame for the way that I am. And this brings us then to our second point. We have ruined ourselves. God gave Adam and Eve a free will so that they could genuinely love him from their heart and not as robots. But with that free will, they instead listened to a lie that the devil told them. And they completely destroyed not only themselves, but the entire human race with them. By a single choice, when they still had the ability to walk away, they brought themselves under the devil's slavery. In our, in our modern English, we don't, we don't speak about slavery all that often unless we're talking about the American South or certain Muslim countries, other parts of the world where slavery still exists. But the New Testament speaks a lot about slavery and a different kind of slavery. Not just the slavery of one man under another, but a different kind of slavery. Slavery that we bring upon ourselves. In our modern English, we we more often use the word addiction. We tend to associate addiction with only a few specific forms, addictions to alcohol, drugs, pornography, and things like that. But Scripture teaches that All sin is slavery or addiction. Consider how Paul speaks about the slavery that Adam and Eve brought on the human race. He says in chapter 6 that each of us by nature, before knowing Christ, were slaves to sin, obeying it even though we knew it was destroying us. In Ephesians 2, Paul speaks of us being dead in our sins and trespasses. It's very strong language, but it's language that addicts will understand very well. Now, in Christian theology, there's, there's been this endless debate about our free wills. Do human beings still have a free will after the fall into sin? Calvinists and Reformed typically say no, while others will say yes. The biblical answer is a little nuanced. Do human beings still have free will? Do unregenerate people still make decisions for themselves? Well, in that sense, yes. The answer is clearly yes, they do. Every decision that I have made, I 
have made. And the same is true, of course, for you. And so in this sense, we do still have a free will. Nobody forces me to sin when I sin. I have no right to say, the devil made me do it, or God made me do it. The only honest answer is, I chose to do it, and that choice reflects a great deal of depravity inside me. It shows what lives within me. But in another sense, just like any alcoholic or drug addict can attest, in another sense, we don't have a free will. That's what it means to be a slave, and that slavery is very real. Sheer force of willpower is not going to get me out of that slavery. It's not going to make me stop being a sinner, because my, my own will is profoundly bent towards sin. Just like an addict's will is profoundly enslaved to his own addiction, more willpower is not going to be the answer. That's why the Reformed have always argued we don't have a free will anymore, at least not in that sense. It's not that we don't have a will or that our choices are somehow not ours anymore, but that our will consistently chooses evil no matter how destructive it becomes. An evil will is not going to reform itself because by definition an evil will doesn't want to reform itself. And this, this is what Adam and Eve brought on themselves in the fall into sin. When they took the devil up on his offer, they sunk themselves into an addiction from which the human race has not escaped, at least until the coming of Christ. So with the fall, they profoundly destroyed their human nature. Our bodies and minds are not neutral objects unaffected by our spiritual condition. If we fall spiritually, we also fall physically and mentally and physiologically. The fall into sin affects your entire person. And so it affected Adam and Eve so profoundly that the human nature that they possessed and passed on to their children was ruled by sin. Now, the canons of Dort also describe the effects of the fall into sin. Just like we are created in the image of God so that our minds were made such that we would rightly know God and our wills were upright and our affections were pure, so the canons of Dort teach the fall into sin affected every part of who we are. It says it brought on us horrible blindness and darkness. We don't know God anymore. We don't see the difference anymore between truth and lies. The fall into sin brought on us futility. We waste our lives. We choose not to glorify God and instead live for ourselves and discover at the end, end of our lives only a great deal of wind and emptiness. We bring on ourselves perverseness of judgment. We call evil good and good evil. We bring on ourselves rebelliousness, rejecting God as king and making ourselves kings instead. We bring on ourselves stubbornness in heart and in will. When God calls us to repentance by nature, we resist that call. And finally, we brought on ourselves impurity in all our affections. Instead of loving and desiring God as the most valuable pursuit, we love and desire what is impure and wrong. 
Well, Scripture teaches unequivocally that this is who we really are. Ecclesiastes 7, verse 29, which I quoted earlier, See, this alone I have found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. Jeremiah 17, verse 9, looks at the human heart and says, It is deceitful above all things. As we saw a few weeks ago when we were looking at Lord's Day 2, we saw Paul saying that there is no one who does good, no, not even one. So when you look inside of yourself, Paul says, you find a, a depravity that is breathtaking. Adam and Eve's sin and fall became our sin and fall. That's what Paul clearly teaches in Romans 5. Sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, because all sinned. Because of the one man's trespass, death reigned. One more time, because of the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Sin so deeply affected Adam and Eve's nature that they passed on that same brokenness to their children and to us. David says in Psalm 51, I was, born, or I was conceived and born in sin. We are the victims of Adam and Eve's sin, but we are also the propagators of their sin. We inherit the consequences for their sin, and we make them worse by our own sin. We are, collectively and individually, each responsible for the sin that we find within ourselves. Who else, after all, are we to blame? We know what we have done. And so the Catechism leaves us with a very dark assessment of our own condition. Are we so corrupt, it asks, that we are totally unable to do any good and inclined to all evil? And the Catechism following Scripture says, yes. It's what we read in Romans 3 last time. No one does good, not even one. It's not that human beings don't have some inclinations that are upright. Of course, they do. You see many acts of kindness and generosity, personal sacrifice. You see that all over the planet. But Because Scripture doesn't teach that we're as bad as we, we possibly can be. But those acts of kindness happen in a world where human beings have invented the cruelest things to do to one another, where selfishness still reigns dominant, and above all, where human beings that were made to know God and love Him and live with Him instead reject Him as King and even spit in His face, even as He gives them their every breath and every heartbeat. Well, that's the general picture of our human condition that Scripture teaches us. This is what Scripture tells us to expect to find if we're going to honestly examine ourselves. And now, brothers and sisters, we have to take the general picture into the specifics. It doesn't do any good if we can acknowledge at a general level that we are sinners and that all this is true of us if we aren't also willing to let God speak to us in the specifics of our lives. If we're going to know the joy of the gospel that we've seen in others and that God calls us to in his word, then, then we also need to put everything onto the table. He tells us, Jesus, Jesus Christ tells us that we must lose our lives. We must surrender them before God. 
The strength to do that will only come from knowing the gospel of Christ. We know that there's joy and hope at the end of the road, even if the way there is full of suffering and self-denial and honest, painful reflection on who we are. We wouldn't dare to go down this road if we didn't know that there was true, deep, lasting joy at the end of it all. We know that we've made a great mess of ourselves. But the gospel teaches there is a way back to God, a way to fix what we've broken in our human nature. And that then brings us to our last point. It will take a miracle to fix us. And that miracle is called the work of regeneration. Through the gospel, God makes new people out of us, broken, sinful people. Listen to Paul again in Romans 5 verse 17. He says, If because of the one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Again in verse 18, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. So the way to the joy that we're working for, the the joy that we long for, that we were created for, is through the knowledge that Christ has paid for our sin, so that we guilty sinners, collectively and individually, we could be forgiven by the Father. And since we are forgiven, the Holy Spirit also now dwells in us. By The Holy Spirit dwells in us to change us in the deepest parts of who we are. What we confess about the brokenness of the human race, the depravity that that we believe exists within us, we do not confess that about those who are regenerated. We shouldn't ever say that as Christians, that I'm, I'm a depraved sinner. That's not true of those who are regenerated. The Holy Spirit makes us into new people. And so the image of God in which we were created is not an impossible goal for us to strive after. Now, I know, of course, we won't reach perfection until after this life. But for those who believe the gospel, that Christ has died for our sins so that we can be restored to God, the promise of the gospel is not only that we sinners will be forgiven, but also that we will be made new. We will be new people, even in this life. We cannot grow cynical or discouraged. We need to be realistic. The battle is hard. The struggle is very real. But God makes us, through the Spirit, into new people. There's no greater joy on earth than growing into the image of God, seeing the Holy Spirit at work in every area of our lives. That's the joy and the glory for which God created us and for which he saves us. That's something that the Spirit, that, that, that God promises to give through the Spirit to those who pray for it and strive for it day after day. And just to be clear, that, that striving isn't a question of willpower, but a question of surrender and prayer and dependence on God. 
So as, as we go through these weeks, through the hard process of seeing ourselves for who we really are, let us keep our eyes fixed on the gospel, the promises that we have in Christ, including the promise of the Holy Spirit who makes us new. We were made to be so much more than the people that we presently are. Let the gospel then give you the courage to put your entire life on the table before God, to let God get into the specifics, to confess all of your sins to yourself, to God, and even to your fellow Christians as God gives you those particular friendships for your own growth and encouragement. God knows that is a hard thing for us to do, but unless we allow him to break our hearts, then our condition will only ever become worse. So don't retreat from that process, even though it's painful. Fix your eyes on Christ. The joy and the glory of living out the gospel is worth the pain that we experience on the way there. So let us strive after that by God's grace and by the Holy Spirit's power. Amen.